Let's take up our Bibles at this time and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll read the entire chapter. We'll be focusing on verses 5 through 18 and focusing in that sermon on that huge text just on the forest, the whole of it and not the individual trees of it, majestic as they are. In fact, because... The words and the passages and the concepts are so lovely in Hebrews 2 and so detailed. I want to consider in future Lord's Supper sermons uh, different of the texts, the trees, the sequoias, the redwoods, the towering words of God in those sermons. But hear the forest. These first words of God... Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard, lest we drift away. For the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And now our text is forest. For he's not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? or the Son of Man, that you take care of him. You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put in under him, but we see Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, it does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. 
Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Thus far we read, amazing word of God. May God bless us, beloved. We hear of great things again today because we're opening this great word. And by way of introduction, I would remind you that the apostle here, or whoever God used to write this epistle to the, he- of, of, to the Hebrews, is speaking of the great word. In fact, chapter 1, he's compared and contrasted the God who spoke at different times and various times and various ways by the fathers and by the prophets, to the fathers and by the prophets. He says, now now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So he's emphasizing, as will the writer to the Hebrews at various key places in the whole book, the word of God. There's a word that's spoken, and the word which is so great, it speaks of the great Jesus and of his great salvation, that we have to be careful to take heed to it. Take heed, we're told, that we don't let these things slip. This is chapter 2, and the beginning of the context of our, our text for this morning. Therefore, because of the great word of the great Savior, we must give heed to the things we've heard now in these latter days. We don't want to drift away as going on by the port of harbor, the the port of safety and refuge. We We drift away by not believing or being careless in our life. We don't want to drift away into heresy or into a life that says we, we don't really get it, that life is not just about things or hearing other people's words. It's about the word that God has spoken, that word of our salvation. So this is how we're being addressed at this time even, the exhortation that we not let the word of the great Savior drift and that we, or drift from it, and that we neglect not the great salvation that's been spoken. That's the word we're hearing today, and that's how we're going to approach this last part of chapter 2. We need to hear the word of the great word. And there's a reason why we need to hear this great word of God, who's spoken to us of his great and glorious divine Savior Son. And the reason is because what the Apostle is going to speak of now, of the humanity of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus, doesn't seem like such a great word of such a great Savior because, well, he's like us. He's a man. And He's this one who suffers. So here you have 
the, the great stumbling block of Christianity. And if people wouldn't believe the Son and all of his miracle working existence on earth, and they wouldn't believe this, the Son who was declared to be God by the whole of Scripture and by himself and the apostles, how are we going to believe that he's just like us in all things except for sin? And that he had to suffer. How, how do we get that? How do we take heed to that? Earnest heed. If on the face of it, it doesn't seem to fit into our minds. It can't. It just can't. And that's the, the first thing that makes it so hard but so important to hear. The second is that we're just people and just sinful. And look at our life. That's full of suffering and temptation. And look at the church and look at our influence in the world and, and all of these things that seem to betray a problem with Christianity itself and Christianity in me and in you. So... Let's hear this with sobriety. Let's be confronted by the problems we have, the problems we have with Jesus being over us and among us and suffering for us even, the difficulties. But let's consider the great comfort that this is, and that will be the main focus here, that Christ is a brother and a savior and a God among those he calls brethren. That's emphasized in the passage. He comes and he dies, he suffers, he dies, and he dwells among us as a brother who's faithful to the end. Let's consider Christ among his brethren. The forest today, various trees in the future, God willing. And then we want to consider, first of all, that he is a representative Lord in this earth. That's the first part of this text. And then secondly, that suffering for our sin and for our salvation. And finally, that he's faithful brother to the end. We deal with that last part about his aiding us and how this aid is needed. Well, the apostle... God, through the writer, is still wanting to maintain the supremacy of Christ and that over angels. He's been speaking at length, seemed to be a great temptation in the early church of Christ being more excellent than angels, those spirit beings, children, who are created indeed, but who aren't like us, they're in this kind of exalted heavenly state, and he's speaking of the good angels who didn't fall, this exalted heavenly state of being servants to God in sinlessness, and servants to the church, and so on. In fact, as we've seen in Hebrews 2, that they were even those who were by God in the giving of the law. They were those who spoke the word. Verse 2 of chapter 2 and who were, in other passages, speak of the fact that unseen at Mount Sinai were angels ministering then already in the Old Covenant 
to the heirs of salvation. And so this word of God ministered through Moses and angels. But Jesus, Paul has been saying, is a greater word. And he's greater than the angels also in this, that though he's made a little lower than the angels in his taking on human flesh, he is one to whom is given dominion. And this is the first part of this text. It's a quote of Psalm 8. One testified in a certain place. He's referring simply to the Bible says somewhere and referring, we know, to Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? Speaking of the humility of man. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hand. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, what the apostle's doing here is he's saying, though there's this man, the, the creature man, and there's this uncreated man, this one who took on humanity, Jesus, who are made a little lower than the angels, yet they are given something angels never were, and that's dominion. And this is what the apostle is saying here at the outset. Uh, He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. And he goes on to quote Psalm 8 as saying, he has put it unto, or he put the world of which we speak unto the dominion or under the dominion of men represented by Jesus. This is the idea. For in that he put all in subjection under him. This is going on here in verse 8. He left nothing that is not put under him. And so on. Well, let's consider that first and just, again, try to get a grasp of this here. What the apostle What God is doing here in this inspired word is saying there's another way that Jesus, that I'm preaching to you, is greater than angels, even those highest beings. And the other way is dominion. He's the king. Angels aren't kings, but Jesus is. And what he does here is refer to a psalm that speaks of man, of man, the created man, Adam, and all in him, as those who were first given dominion. God said to Adam, you're going to be the king over creation on my behalf. Everything's going to be subject to you in my name. You're my representative king. But what the apostle's doing here is saying that Jesus Christ is the representative of all the representatives and even Adam, that he's he's the better Adam, the second Adam, the perfect Adam. And he has dominion over all things. God has given him that all things should be subject to him. But more, the word of God is speaking here of the greatness of Jesus in comparison to angels Because it's saying that Jesus, he's speaking of Jesus, his son, is the one who's made Lord, not just of any world, but of the world to come. He's not put the world to come of which we speak. 
in subjection to angels. What is he talking about there? Well, in the first place, he's talking about heaven and earth and the eternal realm of God. And yes, indeed, this, is, this dominion is given to Jesus when he ascends to the right hand of God. And he hasn't gotten there yet to speak of the right hand of God and all of this, but this is the message he's bringing. He's bringing to the Hebrews those caught in the throes of half-Christian, half-Judaism. He's giving to them the great word of the singularity of the excellency of this Son, who is our message and who is our Savior. Jesus Christ is given all power and authority in heaven and earth as a reward for his exaltation so that it's given him by God as the mediator to have this dominion. And at every, at the end of the ages, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is confessed that he's exactly this, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the first thing. And I want to remind you that the world to come is a mysterious reference here, I believe, to the kingdom of heaven itself. The world to come is that kingdom of heaven world, that world of all the worlds that God loves and he sent his son for to, to lead them to glory. Imagine that. Not imagine that, believe that. When we're taken from this world and Egypt, the sinful world, and the guilt and the shame and the fellowship of sinners, were taken into another world, the called out world, the ecclesia, the church of Christ, the city on a hill, the forgiven people, so that we sit and reign with Christ. Ephesians says, Ephesians 2, now, not just in the ages to come, but now. Now, we're, we're preaching this in light of the rest of the New Testament. Paul isn't here, but this we know. This we would bring to bear on this word here. The greatness of Jesus is seen in that he's given a, a world to come. A new heavens and new earth and the church to be Lord over. That's the message of the gospel. We speak this. And we know this. We know this so well because we're heirs of that kingdom and we're beneficiaries of that king and made kings on his behalf, representatives of the representative of the elect of God. So what the apostle's doing here is speaking of this great one, and angels never had that authority, that might, that dominion. They're always servants. But here, this eternal Son of God, who's king in his his divine and eternal nature, he's absolute king, but in his mediatorial human nature, he's given dominion, victory. 
He's made a little lower than the angels, which could refer to the depth of his existence now as a man, but it could refer also to the fact that he's made for a little while lower than the angels. Either way, it's speaking of Christ for a time and in his humiliation being made one who would be limited, be tempted in all things and so on. But the main thing here of this first part is that Jesus is given dominion. Dominion. Now, but here's the problem. And I broached this problem in the introduction to the sermon. The problem of Christianity is that it doesn't look that way. It doesn't look from what we see as if Jesus has dominion over all. Everything's under his feet. Or that we have everything under our feet. Look at everything this past week that's gotten out of your control. Well, I mean, that you wanted to control maybe your temper, maybe your words, and they were not under control. Think of all the time that you spent wasting the seconds, the minutes, the hours on the Internet, thinking bad thoughts, doing frivolous things. And you're a king under God. You're taken into the fellowship of Jesus. And you acted that way. And I acted that way. Shame on us. Shame on us. But then, and so we we start to wonder, really? Because, remember, Psalm 8 speaks of the man, as of men. And symbolically and typically, it's talking about the man, Jesus, but it's speaking of this us, in the kingdom of heaven, who are supposed to be the kings. But then you think about how it doesn't look like all things are under him. That's the, what the, the writer is getting at here. He's getting at a, a, maybe a possible subject, a, objection. He's made a little lower than the angels, took care of that because now he's higher than the angels. And now... He has this exalted position, but still, now we do not yet see all things put under him. He's dealing with this problem of this world, which is at the edge of the world to come, but it's not quite yet there. The theologians speak of the whole of Christianity as, and the reality of the gospel as the already and the not yet. And that's that's a fair parsing of things of the scripture, of the reality of salvation. We're forgiven, and yet there's much sin. There's something of heaven in us and in the church of Christ, and yet there's much sin. There's already things 
there's things that will only come to pass in heaven. You have a foretaste of it. Well, it's also, we could say, for Jesus, it's true that all things are under him. And don't forget that reality. Just because it doesn't look like it, all things are under him. Nevertheless, now we do not yet see all things put under him. We don't see it. Look at this world we live in. It's getting worser and worser. Society, individuals, the the depth of depravity we thought had been plumbed in the 60s, those of us who've lived back then. Or if we've moved in or lived and visited San Francisco or New York City, the, the orifices of America. But it gets worse and worse, doesn't it? And the sin is bad and the solutions seem worse. Wear a mask, invent new genders. Make some kind of peace with all the individuals in the world that's no peace whatsoever. You get tired of it, beloved? And all the world has to say is man, man, man. And this is good, and it's evil, and this is bad. The Christian faith, and it's really the only good that there is. Doesn't look like that. But now look at this. So there, there's the reality, and this is the representative lordship of Jesus. It's true. We don't see it, but you see, we're being called here to greater things as we are in every sermon. Believe it. Believe it. That's what we're being called to right here. Believe the word of God. Believe it. Everything seems falling apart while it's together. God has ordained it to be together, and he's making it be together. He's wise. He's the counselor. The will of man ultimately is not being done. The will of God is. That is that wonderful, powerful counseling will of the willing God. Many of the thoughts in the hearts of a man, but the purpose of the Lord, that shall be established. The king's heart, the president's heart, the prime minister's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whithersoever he will as the rivers of water, as God. And in your life, And for the sake of Jesus' glory and God's in him, all is well. Believe that. That's what this preaching is all and ultimately all about. All is well with my soul and in heaven and on earth. And that's why we celebrate the supper together. 
But the reality of realities is the God of our salvation, isn't it? And so often we'd, we'd be stuck in lesser things of things. Psalm 73, the whole series was about that. Good or bad, we'd be stuck on those things. And of sin. But God is saying, believe me. Believe me. Oh, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Well, he's everything to God. Is his son, that's the representative man. He would have him have the dominion that everything would bow to him and everyone would say of him, he's Lord, yes indeed, to the glory of God the Father. And there's those people that we just can't push over because if we try to push them over, they come right back up. And we try to say a word about them. They are sinful just like us, but then they come back up with the other word, no condemnation, no condemnation. Forgiven. Victory in Jesus, that's who I am, that's what I have. And I see things, yes, indeed, and they can be disconcerting, they can be upsetting. But I see Jesus, first of all. And that's where he goes right here. But we see Jesus. That's something. We see Jesus. And that can't mean that we see him by the eye. Children, do you see Jesus? You know... If you close your eyes, you open your eyes, you had the best glasses and everything, you couldn't see Jesus that with your eyes, could you? I can, we cannot see Jesus. But believing is seeing. So there's a shift here. We're seeing things not put under Jesus, not yet, in a way. But we're believing Jesus and seeing him in the scriptures as someone who was made a real man, a representative man, and even a suffering one. Suffering one. And that's the theme of the rest of this passage, the suffering Savior. Who suffered for our salvation. Who suffered that he might be among us just as is our condition. Suffering, hurting, grieving, losing loved ones, hurting, all that way of suffering. Beloved, hear that word of God. And we're going to have the supper soon. And we see Jesus there who suffered for us. And who is a brother of us. He's at the table. He's presiding over it in his spirit, his word, through the ministry of the church. And you come and partake of that, beloved, because it's for sinners. That's what seeing Jesus 
is all about. I behold the Lord who is my suffering Savior and whose suffering was not in vain. Amen.